Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. On our last episode, we brought you a conversation with two Republican congressional budget experts. They walked us through the final hurdles that the Inflation Reduction Act would need to clear in order to pass the Senate. Democrats in Congress used the process known as budget reconciliation. The upside? No filibuster is allowed. You only need a majority to approve a reconciliation bill. And the downside? There are strict rules about what can be included. Our two budget nerds previewed the final challenges that the bill would likely face from Republicans. They nailed one of the parliamentarian's rulings. She nixed a portion of the bill that would have applied inflation caps to the private pharmaceutical market. But everything else in the Democratic bill survived the parliamentarian's review. After some last-minute tax changes to appease Senator Kirsten Sinema, the Inflation Reduction Act passed the Senate 51 to 50, with Vice President Kamala Harris casting the tie-breaking vote. The House is taking up the bill today, Friday, and it will likely be on Joe Biden's desk this weekend. We're off this week, but our wonky breakdown of the reconciliation process proved to be a surprise hit with listeners. So we went back into the editing room and made this director's cut of our nearly three-hour conversation with Eric Uland and Greg D'Angelo. Instead of focusing on the last-minute maneuvering before the parliamentarian, they step back and explain the long history of reconciliation and how it has come to dominate lawmaking in ways that were never anticipated when the process was created back in the 1970s. For their most significant policies, neither party has 60 votes. Reconciliation is how presidents get big things through Congress now, and it's likely to be that way for the foreseeable future. To understand how major policy changes can happen these days, you need to know how this Byzantine process works. So this week, Eric and Greg are going to take us even deeper into the weeds of the history and minutiae of budget reconciliation. It's a perfect show for the beach, especially if you're our friend Mitchell Moss. I'm Ryan Lizza. This is Playbook Deep Dive. The backdrop to reconciliation actually evolves in the 1960s when the budget begins to get pretty large, relatively speaking. It seems rinky-dink to us today, the size of the, and scope of the budget back in the 60s. But it grew pretty quickly under President Johnson, had a whole bunch of new mandatory programs that suddenly got added to it, a lot of new domestic discretionary responsibilities. And the way the executive branch did budgeting back then was basically, here it is, in pieces and parts, chunks throughout the year, please give us our money. And Congress generally, without a lot of information from the executive branch, be like, uh, okay, we're writing your check. So, so when the president's annual budget was actually disorganized, adopted. Yes. It wasn't yes. just a, and like a press say, release. Agencies and departments could send their budget directly to the Hill. Committees could send back their answer whenever they wanted to without any integrated form or fashion from the congressional end of Pennsylvania Avenue about how this all fit together. Did the budget committees themselves exist in that? They did not. Prior they were created by this. Before, there were no budget committees. The act actually created this. Um, this both the committees as well as the superstructure in Congress and the executive branch about how to do budgeting, pull your budget together, send it over to Congress at the beginning of the year. Congress reacts by adopting what's called a budget resolution. Then all the discretionary spending and any adjustments to mandatory programs and taxes can come through this budget process through this procedure called reconciliation. And back in the 70s, you had a pretty significant economic set of challenges, right? So you had inflation, you had unemployment, you had ultimately stagflation, and everything going on in the economy had a significant impact on the puts and takes inside the federal budget. 
So the Budget Act actually called for Congress to budget twice a year, pass the so-called budget resolution in the spring, the first budget resolution, and then take a look at the macroeconomics in the fall and pass a second budget resolution. And the methodology to in reconcile... In the same year, not in the same not term. Same year, right, exactly. Yeah. Not in the same Congress. So twice a year you were doing a budget resolution. And inside that Budget Act was a little process set up to harmonize what was in that first budget resolution with what was in the second budget resolution. That's the reconciliation process. Which, so that the word reconciliation actually had its traditional meaning, which <laughs> you're the and first person that's ever alignment. explained what's getting reconciled. Right. <laughs> Peaceful and happy alignment. What we thought we were going to do in the spring versus what we really need to do in the fall and winter in order to budget for the federal government. And you can use this methodology, this so-called fast-track process, so-called reconciliation, to do that. Or you can do it regular order. You can call up bills, put them out for amendments and votes out on the Senate floor, pass those, get them through both chambers into the president. So while people argue about when Congress actually passed the first reconciliation bill, some people claim it's 1977, a lot of other people claim it's 1980, it's clear that in the 70s reconciliation was used at least once. And back in the 70s and into the early 80s, the big consuming concern in Washington, D.C. was stagflation, was inflation and concomitant unemployment, low growth rates. And there was a belief that Congress and the executive branch had a couple of different tools to address this. One is monetary policy. But as well, Congress and the executive branch had some fiscal tools, including controlling spending, and what you do with revenues. So early on, reconciliation, certainly as it was contemplated and used the first time, was argued as a tool to deal with some of these macroeconomic challenges, and in particular, what its impact might ultimately be on inflation and stagflation. Then that was the first, so that's, um, that's the I late think you, 70s. You, you told me before said, there are three phases. Right, so, so that's, that's kind of the first you. phase. Let's see if we can tackle inflation and stagflation through what we do federal budgeting here in Washington, D.C., including if we decide using reconciliation. The second phase starts after the use of reconciliation. Republicans gain control of the Senate, and reconciliation is used in 1981 to actually bring down spending. Most people forget that in 1981, reconciliation wasn't used to deal with spending cuts and tax cuts. It's only the hard stuff, the spending control that got in reconciliation. Tax cuts traveled a regular order, normal path. But they took all the spending reductions and spending control and put them over inside reconciliation. And that became a much more party line style exercise, but then ignited a long period of time where reconciliation was used primarily as a deficit control device. So whether it is clawing back some of the 1981 tax cuts in subsequent reconciliation bills, whether it's proposing new changes to control mandatory spending, you see a lot of reconciliation bills in the 1980s focused on the deficit. The high point of that was 1990 under President H.W. Bush and 1993 under President Clinton, where both passed under reconciliation packages designed to have a significant deficit reduction impact. But a couple of interesting things were going on during this period as well that ultimately opened the door to kind of the third phase of reconciliation, which is the kind of policy phase. Inside this weird contorted budget primary process, are there ways that we can pull off policy goals and policy objectives? The answer is, in some cases, yes. Some of the most significant ones that people were able to accomplish, for example, include welfare reform in 1996, a bipartisan accomplishment, Democrat president, Republican Congress, reconciliation is chosen as the vehicle to pull this off. And with some twists and turns, it's able to be passed and it's become the law of the land for you know, over a generation. Did Clinton try and use it for health care reform? 
he did not try to use it for Hillary Care in 1993. And the reason he didn't is because the godfather of what we're going to talk about a little bit later, the Byrd Act, Senator Robert C. Byrd, the senior senator from West Virginia, told him and all the Senate Democrats at the time that you cannot use reconciliation to accomplish this mammoth rewrite of what was then one-seventh of the economy and push all these policy ideas through. If I remember correctly, there's a, there's a, a, a very dense account of the health care uh, debate by um, Haynes and, and Johnson, and there's a scene in that book where the White House aides, the Clinton White House aides are contemplating using reconciliation, and someone, it may have been Robert Byrd himself, comes to him and says, I need to tell you about the Byrd rule. And literally the entire plan <laughs> to, to put Hillary Care through reconciliation blows up because th- these White House staffers, maybe because they were a little naive, didn't know Washington, but, didn't re- but suddenly realized, okay, we're not using reconciliation uh, uh, for this. Well, banging around as a junior staffer back then in 1993 when, when we fought Hillary Care, absolutely was the case that there were a lot of staff at the White House who had either come from the House, come from the campaign, or come up from Little Rock, who did not have any idea about the procedural challenges that they would face, much less Senator Byrd's guardianship of what we now know as the Byrd Rule and reconciliation process writ large. So yes, there were a series of conversations to tell them you cannot, and that helped encourage and allow Republicans to ultimately bring down Hillary Care in the summer of 1994. So um, you introduced a main character in the reconciliation wars of the last uh, 50 years, Robert Byrd. We hear a lot about the Byrd rule, Byrd baths, things being birded, BYRD for for listeners who haven't uh, followed this. When does that um, get introduced into, into the process and essentially start governing the process? So let's hop back to 1981. And that reconciliation bill I mentioned earlier. These West Virginia the, senators have always been very the, powerful. The, the package <laughs> of spending reductions that President Reagan and Republicans on the Hill and some Democrats had agreed needed to be accomplished. Well, during consideration of that legislation in 1981, Senator Byrd, who was the Democratic leader, the minority leader at that time, became increasingly frustrated that the process of reconciliation was being used to add in material ideas and proposals that had no impact on the budget, but nevertheless were suddenly priorities and therefore were traveling in this fast track process where you couldn't easily amend, you couldn't block calling up the bill, you couldn't filibuster it while it was standing because reconciliation on the floor. Pr- it was protected time limited it's called privilege is the is the term of art but what that means is literally you can't filibuster it there's going to be a strict time limit there's going to be strict control of amendments there's going to be strict control on motions and once it's all over up or down on the senate pass or fail you move on yeah so just to back up for a second yeah what was the thinking behind the fa- the fast track privileged um Uh, aspect of reconciliation in the 70s when it was written into law? Reconciliation and the budget resolution, like other fast-track laws, took notice of the challenges that the Senate could find itself in in trying to move high-priority items. As well, members at the time were reacting to the ways both President Johnson and President Nixon would be able to evade legislative scrutiny and focus on what was going on in the executive branch by delay tactics, both out on the Senate floor as well as in committee. And so they're designed to ensure that the full House and the full Senate are able to vote if you meet all the conditions along the way. So that's part of the motivation for why you have a fast track process that was given to the budget resolution and imputed down to the reconciliation process. Back then, if you had been really, really creative, you could have uh, introduced any sort of policy into, into reconciliation Not pre-Bird only Rule? could you, it was done. And there are some classic examples. What, what are some examples? 
Well, I think one of the best uh, examples often retailed is the number of seats on a regulatory agency were adjusted inside a, a reconciliation bill. That has absolutely no fiscal impact. It's negligible in terms of discretionary spending authority. It has no mandatory spending impact, has no revenue impact. But nevertheless, that was cheerily moving along inside reconciliation. Was it a partisan issue, or was it much more of a bird being protector of Senate, the Senate institution? It was institutional. It was. Right. So lots of people brought partisanship to it, yes. But several of these most significant non uh, fiscal impact ideas in the 1981 reconciliation bill were actually bipartisan. But he did not like the fact that you could take this fast track process, put most of the Senate's judgment aside, and pull this stuff off without the rest of the Senate being able to, to have a voice in it, and the Senate itself being protected from this process being abused. So in 1981, he was able to create a political firestorm and force the Republicans and the majority to take some of this material out or modify it. But there was no process for doing that. So over the next few years, he developed a process, or at least a, a regimen about this. And in 1985, he was able to get the United States Senate to adopt for itself the first version of what we call the Bird Rule. This way of saying, hey, people, we can use reconciliation, but you can't abuse reconciliation. And that got adjusted over the next few years and ultimately became part of statute. So it's the law of the land in 1990. Wow. Yes. Okay. So it's part of the 1990 budget deal between President George H.W. Bush that's, and so Democrats that's in Congress. explains why no uh, Senate majority has come along and said, let's get rid of the, <laughs> the bird rule. The Senate can change its rules whenever it wants. But it's right. statutory this is now. Statute so this now. Is, you just actually triggered something, which I will mention, but I don't want to dive down in a rabbit hole too much on this. It's hard for the Senate to change laws unilaterally. How the Senate chooses to interpret the laws, though, is up to the Senate itself. And there is the crux of the conversation about the Bird Rule itself, its six tests, and what's happened since it was created and then ratified legislatively in 1990. Got it. Okay. So as it becomes more difficult to pass legislation, as the filibuster becomes much more promiscuously used, both parties look to reconciliation to sort of solve their legislative strategy problems. It becomes the tool, right? Um, yes. You do see experimentations with policy starting in the early early 1990s. So, for example, in the 1993 reconciliation bill, President Clinton and the majority Democrats do put some policies on the table about prescription drugs. Oh, interesting. Interestingly That's enough. That's a timely issue. Yes. So <laughs> while those Tells you how long they've been working on yeah, this. Yeah, don't necessarily bear on point today. Some of the work about the pharmaceutical industry inside the reconciliation context is 30 years old. Greg, what's your earliest um, encounter with this process? That's a great question. So I started in the Senate working on the Budget Committee in November, October actually, of uh 2009. Okay. So this was at the point where the Senate majority, the Democrats had the majority, they had 60 votes, they were passing the Affordable Care Act through regular order. Um, the House had its bill, they were going to go to conference, and then as we discussed earlier, they no longer had 60 votes, Scott Brown was elected, and they thought, okay, well, how are we going to, how are we going to get this bill Ted over Ted Kennedy dies. That's right. Republican in Massachusetts, comes out of nowhere, Scott Brown. That's right. Takes the Kennedy seat. The White House is caught completely off guard by this. Yes. And they lose their majority. The Senate bill. Uh, or, yeah. Excuse me, they lose their supermajority. The Senate bill wasn't acceptable to the House, you know, uh, so they needed to figure out a way to basically conference the bill without going to conference and needing 60 votes. So they write a reconciliation bill. At the time, we called it the so-called fix-it bill, the sidecar. So they made adjustments to the Senate bill. And that the totality of the, of the reconciliation package and the underlying Affordable Care Act is what we know today as Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act. And so that was my, my first foray. So I was thrown into this process and was a participant in, in a lot of the bird baths on that first bill, Hesera, um, you know, related to the ACA. And then I spent, you know, nearly a decade, as I mentioned earlier, at the Budget Committee and worked on four different reconciliation bills and uh, was a participant in the process. And So 
when did both parties start to develop a core of staffers who are experts in this arcane process? Um, because suddenly your entire legislative agenda can live or die based on whether you pass muster uh, with the parliamentarian. Look, that goes back almost to the beginning. Yeah. And the best example of that is Senator Sanders' current chief counsel, but prior to that, the former yeah, Democratic <laughs> staff director of the Senate Budget Committee under three, four Senate Democratic chairman, Bill Douster. And Bill literally wrote the book on reconciliation. If you can find the long-ago out-of-print version of Bill's opus, it exhaustively and comprehensively goes through the reconciliation process and every reconciliation precedent through 1993. Really? It's very difficult to find. A, is this like yeah. the secret guide that you guys all you know, well, there, need to have are, on your shelf? Yeah, well, there are several secret guides. Not so secret, but Bill's definitely is a reservoir of information. There was an update of Bill's work in the mid-2000s spearheaded by Senate Republican staff. As well, the um, Senate Book of Precedents, um, the so-called Riddicks. Riddicks is a compendium of all Senate precedents in interpreting the rules up through 1991. So it covers some of the early efforts on reconciliation. After 1981, reconciliation bills passed pretty much annually. So this is like... Uh, so there's so a lot of material like the, there. If you're going to argue before the Supreme Court, obviously you need to know all of the, the legal precedents. This is the equivalent when you're going before the parliamentarian to, to argue um, whether something passes the, the bird rule or not? So it's a combination. It's like everybody who practices in front of the Supreme Court. There is a cohort of people who are admitted to the bar of the Supreme Court who know what they're doing and are called upon as experienced litigators to supplement or in some cases argue cases in front of the justices. It can be somewhat similar in terms of the resources you're drawing from and the people you're drawing from to have on hand on the Hill in order to push reconciliation forward, which is why Sanders' recruitment of Bill Douster and getting Bill back was a significant signal to everybody how serious Democrats were going to take the opportunity to try to use reconciliation to drive as much of their policy agenda forward in a tied Senate was to be taken by Senate Republicans. So Bernie becomes the, the chair of the Budget Committee, and the, one of the first things he does is recruit Douster to be his counsel? Chief counsel. Chief, Chief yeah. counsel. So to, to reconciliation nerds, this was, this was a... It's an all-star get. For Democrats, absolutely. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's like getting... So when you saw that, what did you get, both of you, what did you think when you saw that? I thought they were serious, and, you know, right off the bat, we knew they were doing two budget resolutions, which was a strategy that the Republicans actually devised. First, actually leading up to the 2012 presidential election, it was a part of the transition planning for um, then-Governor Mitt Romney. So if Republicans had won, you know, the House, the Senate, and controlled the White House, you know, there was a plan to pass a budget resolution for the current fiscal year, for which Congress didn't, and then do move on to the next budget resolution. So you get at least two bites at the apple in that first year, right? It, that didn't materialize. <laughs> Romney didn't win the election. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and Republicans obviously attempted to do two budget resolutions in uh, 2017 um, with the health care uh, repeal and replace effort and then tax reform. Um, only one of those bills made it over the line. But when Democrats, you know, got unified party control, they controlled the White House, the House, the Senate. They hired Douster. They mentioned, hey, we're, you know, we're doing two budgets. You know, we, we took that seriously. Interesting. So that's when you realize, all right, this is going to be a big reconciliation bill or there, there, this is well, a major no, legislative tool. Right. For Progressives have talked about, let's start at $10 trillion, Let's get to six and a half. Let's get down to three and a half. Regardless, the fact that Bill every was policy, there, yeah. right, meant that Democrats were going to be able to try to swing for the fences. Now, they did in their first reconciliation effort at the top of 2021. Yeah, yeah, they tried yeah. to do minimum wage, right. to n increase the national minimum wage for everybody, public and private sector, federal and state government, to $15 an hour. And Douster, this is you know pretty well ventilated episode of, of 2021 uh, legislative history. He worked night and day on trying to persuade the parliamentarian that this uh, could survive a birdbath. 
part of how we knew it was serious besides who Bill was and Bill's history was also the work that Bill had been doing on the outside to develop arguments about why a minimum wage increase, immigration policy, environmental policy should qualify for reconciliation. So anybody who followed Bill's work when he was out of government in the private sector knew that he had not just shown up and then gotten to work. He'd been thinking about these issues for, in some cases, years. And so our team would need to be ready. And they sure were. All right. So, Greg, you've worked on four of these reconciliation bills. And let's go through um, some of those battles in in recent history before we we, we take on the the current one. Um, And obviously, feel feel free to jump in here. But what's the the first one that you worked on? So the first one was, again, the um, sidecar bill to the Affordable Care Act, so the so-called Fix-It bill. Um, It made a a number of changes that they would have otherwise made in conference. Um, And who's the parliamentarian that year? That was Alan Fruman. Um, Elizabeth McDonough was in the office, but she wasn't wasn't the the parliamentarian herself. Um, So Alan was there. Um, That process, I was in the minority, so that was my first foray into it. And so clearly, I think the role of the minority, generally speaking, is you you attack everything in the bill, right, on the basis of the rules anything plausible um you know and so that yeah. was that that was sort of how that was approached um so you've got your like douster book there and your precedent book and you're sort of looking for i mean it's like making a a, a, a case before a judge that's right and that's where i first learned about the the bird rule and its six key tests to determine whether or not a provision provision is considered extraneous all right just or not pause uh, there and let's explain that briefly because this is the crux of it all like yeah. the reason we're doing this is because this process uh, the, the most important legislation to the country lives or dies based on whether it passes this obscu- muster with this obscure process. And um, a lot of it's done behind the scenes, and a lot of it's decided by an unelected parliamentarian. So what are the, what are the, the, the key um, criteria here? So I think generally speaking, as we discussed earlier, reconciliation bills, the provisions in them need to be budgetary, principally budgetary in nature. And, you know, the bird rule yeah. is basically a six-part test to determine whether or not a provision is budgetary. Can you uh, name, you can name all six off the top of your head? Um, I could. Um, yeah. You know, the first Let's is, go through them. Sure. The first is whether or not the provision produces a change in outlays or revenues. Does it affect mandatory spending or tax revenues, yes or no? Okay. And if it, if it, that's the first hurdle. If it scores, it may be appropriate. If it doesn't score, it needs to be considered what's called a necessary term and condition. All right, so, so you already got trouble if it doesn't score. If it doesn't score, but there's exceptions. And scoring for, is a term of art, meaning a CBO, yeah, official has, C- has a cost or savings. Um, and if it doesn't score, it needs to be um, a necessary term and condition of a larger provision that is itself budgetary. So it can be a definition. It could you know, change how outlays are made or revenues are collected. There's an express got exception it. for that. You know, so what's an example changing a funding formula. It may not change the overall amount of funds provided, but it may change who gets what amount and when. So it has a distributional effect. Got it. That's permissible. Got it. Uh, under reconciliation, Got it. Congress you know needs to make spending decisions, so that's perfectly appropriate. So that that is the first thing you look for. Does it score or doesn't score? And if it doesn't okay. score, is it a necessary term and condition to effectuate this larger provision? Um, so when you're on the other side, you're in the minority. You're trying to knock out a provision the, that's first the thing. first thing you're going to look for it's a yeah low hanging that's the fruit, low hanging fruit. The, the second test deals with the committees so the budget resolution provides reconciliation instructions or directives to committees which are basically numerical targets so for example in this in this budget there were uh, 12 senate committees instructed one of which was the senate finance committee their instructions said save at least 1 billion dollars over the 10 year budget window so they should be very big instructions. They don't tie the committee's hands in terms of how they respond. They just need to submit legislation that meets that, that target. So the second test deals with um, a provi- if a provision cha- you know, increases outlays or reduces revenues when a committee is not in compliance, then it has a problem. If you knock a committee out of compliance, that itself violates the Byrd rule. So, or if the committee is not in compliance, any provision that would bring it closer to compliance can be birded out, in other words. So finance was... So when you've got a budget, when you've got a budget resolution that's written, 
in whatever it was, March of 2021, and you've got, you know, 20 different um, versions of the reconciliation legislation since then, um, are, are, um, how is any of this going to match up with those original instructions? Or does or or a new res- resolution so need they to be have to, you have to be consistent with those instructions or else you need to amend the budget. So does that mean when you're writing the original resolution, you basically want it to be as flexible as possible and make the, go- and make the goals of the committees? Uh, in this day and age, yes. But early on, the instructions were very specific in terms of the number. And behind that number were very specific policies that had been worked out by majorities in the committees and provided to the budget committees before they started. So you knew where you're going to end up. Over time, that's evolved now to these outer limits. Hey, you can increase the deficit up to $726 billion over 10 years. How you do that is up to you. Right. The third so test. Yeah. Number three. What is this, this, is a, uh, this guide is my here? bird rule card that I had <laughs> when I worked for then-Senator Judd Gregg. He was the ranking member of the Budget Committee. It's a cheat sheet on the on can reconciliation and the bird rule and the exceptions to it. Oh, this so is great. It was, it was a great... Great guide. Wow. All right. I need one of these. Yeah. <laughs> it's very helpful. Um, so the, the third test deals with the um, committee of jurisdiction. So if a provision is outside of the jurisdiction of the committee that reports it, you have a point of order. There is a um, fatal bird rule test for uh, provisions that are outside of any of the committees. Like if a committee had not been instructed in the Senate and there's a provision in there jurisdiction, that's actually a, a fatal bird rule flaw. Most of these bird rule violations are surgical points of order, um, but that one actually is, is a fatal flaw. But and can we just it. pause there? Yeah, sure. Greg mentioned surgical versus fatal. Yeah. So the analogy pretty much, hopefully, everybody in their head, like Gray's Anatomy. So <laughs> if one of these points of order is raised and ultimately is found valid and there isn't a supermajority to put the point of order aside, then that vulnerable provision is removed, but the rest of the bill lives. However, if you have, right, so that's surgical. However, if you have something that grossly violates this bird rule process or a couple other significant aspects of the Budget Act writ large, these rules of the road for budgeting, and you don't take that out or modify it so it's no longer uh, gonna kill the whole thing, the entire package falls, it, I should say. The entire package loses the special fast-track protection it has. So suddenly it's vulnerable to a full filibuster, amendments from any corner of the sun on any topic, and a dip, very significant difficulty of actually getting through the Senate. Now, nothing's ever... I was going to say... Is no it- reconciliation bill has ever suffered a fatality in the United States Senate. However, the House repeatedly over decades have drafted and passed bills that have fatal provisions in them, those have been fixed before it's actually sent over to the Senate, including last November. The House actually then at that point realized, whoops, there are several fatal provisions in here, and went ahead and corrected them after they passed the bill, after they had all the House committees mark up, after they had the full floor debate, after they've adopted it, they then had a methodology to reach in and kill or modify these fatal provisions in order to make sure that when it ultimately came over to the Senate, it wouldn't fall of its own weight. You know, the parliamentarian tries to get both sides to engage. Greg put his his finger on it that both sides are encouraged to engage on these issues, ultimately in both chambers, because of the institutional equities involved. There should not be an impediment to the Senate actually attempting to exercise its ability to conduct business under reconciliation because of a flawed draft of a House reconciliation bill. But the idea that the House just plows ahead, tosses something across the Capitol dome, and suddenly the Senate's able to blow the whole process up, institutionally, that's a challenge. Now, it kind of depends on what your perspective is. What seat are you inhabiting? Are you in the majority? You're in the minority. Yeah, if you're in the minority... Eh, okay, that's their drafting fiasco. But as well, there's a responsibility to stick up for the entire Senate. And even if we oppose the bill in the minority, the equities of the world in, in a circumstance where in the future we might be in the majority 
also weigh heavily on members. That's interesting. So, so there's a little bit of a non-aggression pact on that on that issue. Yeah. Precedents cut both ways. Yeah. And I think people in the Senate appreciate that. Yeah. Well, yeah. Less and less, but. <laughs> All right. Very interesting. Okay. All right, let's, we're, let's go to four. Yes, yeah, so the fourth test is really the key test. Um, if a provision produces a change in outlays or revenues um, that are considered merely incidental. Um, this is one you hear about all the time. Yeah, yes, exactly. It's right? the merely incidental test. So yeah. essentially you look at a provision and you say, does it score? Okay, and you look at that score and then you weigh it against the non-budgetary aspects of the provision. Is it budgetary or are the budgetary changes merely incidental to this other policy objective? Um, and that's subjective. That's know, subjective. That's, some of these six right. tests are objective. The very first one, does it score or not? That's objective. Yeah, you can always answer that. Nobody's going to put out a table. You can look, is there a number? Is there not? Right? Sometimes there's not and there's asterisks and so forth. But, you know, but reasonable people can, can agree it's an objective test. This merely incidental test is very subjective. And this is where the guidance from the parliamentarian, I think, can be pretty key Got and pivotal. What are, what are some, uh, some well-known examples of policies that didn't meet this test? Yeah, and I think the minimum wage is a textbook example. Yeah. So the federal government would have been deciding what wages are, you know, across the economy. Yes, it would have had, you know, residual effects in multiple areas in the budget, but it was regulating private business practices. Um, another example that um, we were a part of was um, in 2015, we wrote a bill to repeal um, Obamacare. This was sort of the dry run at repeal prior to doing uh, or attempting to do repeal and replace in 2017. Um, part of that bill, um, Republicans uh, attempted to get rid of the, you know, repeal the individual mandate provision uh, as well as the employer mandate. Um, but essentially, the parliamentarian's guidance was that removing the legal requirement to have coverage outweighed any bud- the budgetary effect regardless. The fact that eliminating the mandate, repealing it, would have scored at hundreds of billions of dollars in deficit reduction. The policy effect of getting rid of this legal requirement to obtain coverage, um, you know, that outweighed the budgetary effect. And so, so the workaround to that... Her argument was that the budgetary effect was merely was, incidental. It was merely incidental. It was her dwarf. Conclusion, right, it was her conclusion. Guidance, right, that it Which, was merely incidental. Because remember, this impact hit the private sector as well. So if we're able to remove this legal requirement, it's not just how it changes revenue flows and outlay impacts for the federal government. It also has significant impact on the private sector, private sector provision of health care, what happens with health plans, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you were both involved in those arguments. And she said, uh-uh, sorry. That's right. <laughs> That's right. But... In our conversation and our months of of policy development and our work with parliamentarian, ultimately this bipartisan birdbath, we also established pretty clearly and ultimately with her agreement that, as Greg said, the workaround isn't to directly remove the legal requirement. The workaround is to dial the mandate penalty to zero. Right. So the, the mandate stays there. That's right. It's just nothing. It's just zero. That's right. The policy effect then, policy change was zero, effectively, but we changed this budgetary lever or dial and dialed it down to zero. No penalty. And, and literally, that was Greg's work and a colleague of his, but the two of them worked for months to get the debate to that point where when she provided guidance that you can't undo the legal requirement, we all went back to her office. Stood, stood around with each other, digested that, and in about five minutes, smiled to each other, got on the phone and said, we're going to do this. She said, come on in. We had the debate about it very quick, and the next day she said, sure, that's what you can do. And then, so, obviously, 2017, yeah. we tried to... And wait, to so do, that you know, was... Um, in 2015, during that, the dry run of repeal, it was a provision in that bill. Got it, got it. The okay. bill was vetoed by then-President Obama. Got it. Um, but you, 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 you got it past the parliamentarian. We did, yeah. Even, even though the president vetoed it, right. you knew now you had a, a, a pathway. That's right. And in yeah. 2017, attempted repeal and replace when Republicans had unified control. That provision, you know, was in the bills. Obviously, the bills still failed. Um, but ultimately, it actually made it in, in the tax reform bill. Um, and provided significant deficit reduction. So it ultimately became law. It became law. law right? So That's today right. we have the mandate on the books, With but no it's zeroed content. out. That's correct. And we can thank you for that. Yes, Greg <laughs> and a couple of colleagues. Yeah. And that's an example. You, you used the Supreme Court analogy uh, a while ago. 
that's an example where if you saw it in a core practice litigation strategy, okay, what is the case? How do you frame the question? How do you move it from the lower courts up to the high court so that you've got the right facts, the right question, and ultimately the right answer? This was a very calculated multi-month effort spearheaded by Greg and his colleague in order to get to that point so that regardless of what the guidance was, we would always be able to win. And we did. So it's a very iterative process, I guess, as Eric was saying. You, you work for, for months, sometimes even years, yeah. and try to find these workarounds. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's keep going through the list. Yeah, so the next uh, the bird rule test is whether a provision would increase the deficit in any year beyond those covered by the reconciliation measure or instruction. So this bill covers the 10-year period. If a provision increases the deficit in any of those years beyond the window, and this test is done by each title of the bill. So each committee has their own title. And so each title cannot increase the deficit over the long run. And if it does, there are bur- there's a burr rule point of order against the offending provision or provision. So you, need to, you can strike provisions in order to bring, uh, bring that committee back into compliance with this long run deficit test. And it's generally a 10-year window or, or the resolution can make it anything they want? So until 1998, we did budget resolutions five years long. The minimum requirement is one year and five years. Starting in 98, we innovated a 10-year budget resolution. And conceivably, you could do 20, 40, 50-year budget resolutions if you wanted in the future. The way CBO looks at this after 10 years is as a percentage of the gross domestic product whether or not deficit's going to go up or go down, in this instance, committee title by committee title, are those policies in this area going to push the deficit up in any of the four decades after that first 10 years? If yes, as Greg says, you got to take it out. If not, then all those provisions are fine for that prong of the bird test. How often um, is this a useful tool to strike something? I think in terms of this prong of the bird test, essentially you work as a majority to make sure that if there's going to be a problem outside the window, if you're going to be writing policy that starts to boost the deficit outside that 10 years, you get it fixed before your package goes to the floor. Got it. So you don't want this to come into play. And this is why the Bush tax cuts expired at the end of the budget window to avoid this test, um, for example. Yeah. Um, Just explain that very quickly because... This is one of the hardest things, I think, for people to understand yeah, yeah. <laughs> is, you know, the top priority for George W. Bush was this tax package and it wasn't permanent. Yeah. It, it, so, and you know, I, I, generally speaking, as Eric discussed, reconciliation went from um, a tool to reduce spending and to, uh, then a tool to reduce deficit to ultimately at times a, a tool to, you know, uh, reduce taxes. Uh, but because of this long term uh, bird rule uh, test where you can't increase the deficit over the long term, you know, you could instruct committees to, you know, reduce revenues over the period covered by the, the budget, uh, but not beyond it. And yeah. so you would have these policies enacted through reconciliation, most notably the Bush tax cuts we discussed that would, yeah. would expire with sunset. So they cut taxes for a period of time and then revert back to prior law at the right. end right. Uh, so in order to avoid breaching this. Because this don't forget, in 2001, there were surpluses as far as the eye can see. The economy had not collapsed yet. The war was not at all planned. The change in demographics for Social Security and Medicare were still a decade and a half away. So after 10 years, there was still a significant surplus. So the House Republicans were quite insistent that we shouldn't sunset the tax cuts because we're still in surplus even if they exist. Yeah. But because of the way this language is written, it says you can't be exacerbating the deficit or in the context which is interpreted in the context of a surplus making the surplus less large than it otherwise would oh it doesn't matter if there's a surplus it just matters so we actually started out yes we actually started out in 01 with a significant openness on the senate side about not sunsetting the tax cuts and then as people's understanding of how this provision this prong of the bird test would be interpreted and the guidance that would come from the parliamentarian, the information that came from CBO and joint tax, ultimately the decision was made affirmatively, let's go ahead and sunset them 
that's just process. There were politics involved too. In Whether terms it was good or bad. To our coalition of supporters of the Bush tax cuts in the Senate. Remember, they were bipartisan, but right. that included significant Democratic voices like Zell Miller from Georgia, John Bro from Einstein, Louisiana. Think, right? right. That were also at pains to insist look, let's sunset these so that we don't have this, this problem going forward. And we can't provide you 60 votes to waive this problem. Now, in the end, it turned out to be the most significant lever that congressional Republicans had to accomplish their goals on the personal side of the income tax code. Because if you don't forget, in 2010, facing expiration, everybody got in a room and agreed, okay, we're going to extend these for two years and see how the presidential goes. Right. At the end of the presidential, Governor Romney didn't win. President Obama's reelected. But even though it was kind of painful and, and a lot of twists and turns, ultimately 98% of the Bush tax cuts were turned into permanent law because yeah. that sunset. The bottom line is this rule created a 10-year ticking time bomb. <laughs> That was then extended for two years, but then created was then dealt with in 2013. And Republicans won the entire tax debate in 2013. Even if if at the time, most Republicans newly elected in the Tea Party wave in 2010, they didn't like it. Fully cognizant of that fact. Yeah. So things that were set up in 2001 played out 12 years later successfully. It's just an illustration of a point. Oftentimes in these reconciliation bills, policies are put in place with serious restrictions or challenges or may exhaust in 10 years. Right, right. But by the time you get there, maybe the politics are such as that they're going to be extended for short, medium, long, or permanent terms. Can I just pause to say, if we were designing a, a legislative system to pass policies any policies, tax cuts, what the Democrats were going to do, this is probably not how we would design it from scratch. I don't know that that's the case. We'll see. We're a couple of years out from the 50th anniversary of the creation of the Congressional Budget and Empowerment Control Act, enacted in 1974. I would expect that next Congress, there'll be a lot of smart people up on the Hill, as well as downtown, thinking about how this process works, how effective it's been, what impact has it had on deficit and federal spending? What has it done to the tax code? What has it done to our international competitiveness? All those things. And we'll see what people conclude and whether or not they put alternatives out on the table. In the meantime, there will also be a case that defenders will have to make about whether or not it truly met its goals of bringing back to Congress or enhancing Congress's role in the core budgeting function and enhancing Congress's ability to post up against the executive branch when it came to fundamental budgeting decisions. And the results, I think, will be uh, an interesting set of conversations to to watch. All right, something to watch, the 50th anniversary of that law. Oh, yeah. (laughs) All right. So the sixth test, it is uh, essentially a provision can't make changes to Social Security. And um, if it does, that's also another fatal violation. It's not a surgical violation as some of the others that we've discussed here. Um, so anything Social Security is off limits. Uh, principally speaking, the budget resolution is an on-budget document. So Social Security, Social Security and the Postal Service are considered off-budget. Um, so you can't make changes to Social Security through this reconciliation process. Because, again, reconciliation is simply allowing Congress to make changes in spending and revenue to bring um, current law in line with the assumptions in the budget resolution what was assumed in the budget, what were in the instructions, and here's this fast-track vehicle so you can bring current law in line with what you assumed in the budget. And you can't make changes to Social Security in the budget, and you can't, therefore, reconcile it either. Uh, so, and tra- attempting to do so is fatal to the bill's privilege. In the so that's an easy one. So that I'm assuming this one doesn't come into play very often? Or straight-up changes to Social Security Act? No. Changes to policies that might have an impact on Social Security, yes. There are times where you need to think through and and ultimately, if necessary, refine your legislative proposal so that the changes you're making to Medicare or benefits, for, for example, are not directly linked to or flow from a specific change to Title 20. Okay. So of, you can bump up against this. Right. It's of, possible. Of the overall Medicare I mean, of, of Social Security, yeah. 
Got it. Okay. So, uh, but we have not really run into that problem again because people work hard at the front end right. to, make to sure. fix this problem. I mean, most prominently, for example, in in the welfare reform fights of the mid '90s, you had to be really careful with this. But social security yeah. implications. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and to an extent on healthcare, you do too because Medicare and Medicaid do have some implications for wages and social security. So. You know, and the provision of health care to you directly. Yeah, and when, and when the House is writing a reconciliation bill, I think historically the Senate staff helped them. You know, they can't scrub the bill for every bird rule violation, but they want to make sure, again, before the bill comes over to the Senate, it's privileged. And so they help identify what would otherwise be fatal challenges. They make sure they're not stepping outside of the jurisdiction of the committees that were instructed in the Senate. They're making sure that they're not making changes to Social Security, whether those are direct changes to Title II or downstream effects. Those are the sorts of things that get pre-scrubbed by the Senate staff for the House even before the bill gets sent over because they want to make sure that it's a reconciliation bill that can get called up and have all the privileges and protections afforded to it. One thing that comes out in this conversation is the paternalistic nature of the senators. Each chamber just has different rules. Remember, the House has as many budget provisions that apply to it as applied to the Senate. Reconciliation is Senate-specific. Otherwise, everything else. But don't forget, the House is a majoritarian institution. You have 218 votes. So long as you pass a rule that says, hey, when we consider this bill, we're going to waive all these points of order, you're all good. So they don't have to worry as much about that. And that's our show. Remember to check out last week's episode to hear more from our budget nerds, Eric Euland and Greg D'Angelo. Our producers are Afra Abdullah and Kara Tabor. Adam Allington is our senior producer. Brooke Hayes is the senior editor of audio at Politico. Jenny Amont is the executive producer of audio at Politico. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. I'm Ryan Lizza. Thanks for listening.